We are working our way through this book in which God's name is never mentioned, and that's one of its peculiar features, but actually one of the most encouraging things about the book, because that's exactly how we experience God's work of providence in our lives. He's working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. Even when it looks like he's nowhere to be found, he's working out every detail. And today we're coming very close to the heart of the book as well. So we've come at a crossroad in the story of Esther. The, remember where we are so far? The edict has been sent out that all the Jews in all the kingdom of Ahasuerus are to be annihilated in one day. This is an impossible deliverance. Why? Because this edict was written in the name of the king with the king's signet ring. In other words, it is something that not even the king can repeal or turn back if he wanted to. So it's an impossible way. It, it, the Jews cannot be saved. That's what it means. So we pick up the story in verse 1. And we see here Mordecai's grief. So it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a very, with a loud and bitter cry. So consider Mordecai's grief. Now, can you blame him? Imagine the grief of a man whose actions caused the edict to take place. It is because he refused to bow down to Haman, which arguably was a gray area for a Jew, that this edict is now sent out. So because of him, all of his people will now be killed and destroyed. Therefore, he put on sackcloth and ashes. So just to help you understand the picture here, like sackcloth was a material made of coarse black goat's hair. So it was a very irritating clothing to wear. They would put it on, and they would often put it on their loins as well. So can you imagine that irritation of the skin? That's what it does, but it's, a, it's an expression of their grief. It's, they, their pain is so much, it's a way for them to show their, their deep pain and grief. And then someone, laid, someone who's laying in ashes is a symbol of their ruin. Ashes, it's burnt up, it's over. It's almost like the picture of from dust we came and to dust we returned. So someone lying in ashes is saying, I am undone, my life is over. This is the kind of grief that Mordecai and really all of the Jews are experiencing. As we read the next lines, look at verses 2 to 3. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Notice that no one was allowed into the king's gate clothed like this because the king didn't like to be disturbed by emotional people. So it was like a way to protect the king and the king's emotional stability or whatever. If you did, you could be severely punished. If you came in with, with uh, not dressed rightly or crying or weeping, you, that, that wasn't allowed. We think of Nehemiah. Remember when Nehemiah was sad in the presence of the king and the king noticed that? It said Nehemiah was fearful. He was greatly afraid because that is not allowed. You're not allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. So Mordecai's grief is evident. But now, secondly, we consider Esther's isolation. Esther's isolation in verses 4 to 5. Look at verses 4 to 5. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for 
Hathag, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to a tender and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Notice something peculiar. Esther has no clue what's going on. She is far removed from the people of God. She is isolated. So the best thing she knows to do is to send some clothes, kind of like a pat on the back, like, cheer up, it's not that bad. Now, again, who can blame her because she just doesn't know how serious this is. And Mordecai shows, listen, I'm not accepting this because it's more serious than you think. It's not a small thing I'm, I'm crying about. Notice a small detail with me in verse 4. So just a small detail in verse 4 that says, When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Do you see? So when we read that, we are left wondering, cannot, can Esther not do something? She's the queen. But also, it shows us who she is. This Esther is the queen of Persia. She is a Persian. Will she identify with the people of God? Or will she cling to her comfort or her new identity as a, as a Persian? Now, I don't think it's an accident that in the book of Esther, only one character has two names. Esther. Esther has a Hebrew name, Hadassah, and a Persian name, Esther. So the question is, who is she? What is her identity? To whom does she really belong when push comes to shove, when there's a conflict between the world and the people of God? With whom is she going to side? Who are her people? And what we read now, this exchange between Mordecai and Esther serves to show how isolated she really is. And it's almost comical as you read it because it's this back and forth, back and forth between the eunuch and Esther. So just to highlight this, look at the beginning of verse 6. It says, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square. Look at verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai. And look at verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. He says, like, it's this back and forth. Like, but you know what this shows us? It shows us, it just highlights how far away she is. She's not close. She's isolated and comfortable as the queen. And very soon, she will need to decide with whom she will identify. Look at verses 7 to 9. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Mordecai knows every detail, even the exact money that was promised by Haman. He informs Esther, but then he gives her a command. He says, go and plead with the king. Notice something you shouldn't miss in verse 8, at the end of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8. And commanded her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Oh, the queen is a Jew. Remember, nobody knows this. This was a secret. 
But now the secret is out. At least, if nobody knows, Hathak knows who is the eunuch of the king. Again, now Esther is at this crossroad. She has a choice to make. Will she cling to her life? Or will she lay down her life to, with the attempt to save God's people? Esther's reaction is very human. Okay, look at her reaction in verses 10 to 12. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Translation, easy for you to say, Mordecai. It's more complicated than that. I can't just go and plead with the king. There's risks. It's suicidal to do that. Now, some artwork of King Xerxes shows him with guarded soldiers at his back with axes, ready to chop off anybody's head who comes into the king, unbidden. And moreover, look at what Esther says. She says, I haven't come, the king hasn't called for me these 30 days. In other words, I am no longer the flavor of the month, quite literally. Okay? Now we read this, and we might be tempted to say, Esther, don't, don't, don't you trust God? Can't you just go? But remember, I think you say that because you know the end of the story. You know how it goes. But remember, Esther didn't know her future. She didn't know what's going to happen. The only thing she knows is that Ahasuerus is a king who seems to be easily pleased by his emotion. He seems like a man that on the one day he's a very good-tempered man, and the next day he throws a tantrum, right? Or he's manipulated easily by his emotions and his passions. And we already know that he already removed one queen. Now, here's an irony for you, you. For those of you who like stories and how stories are told, there's an irony here because the first king was removed. Why? Because she refused to come when the king has commanded her to come. And the second queen might be removed for coming when the king hasn't commanded her to come. It's the opposite, right? So it's an irony. And there's no reason to doubt that the king won't do that. There's even a good possibility that he might do that. But there's another reason I think Esther might be tempted to doubt whether or not she can just go and expect God to, to protect her or to bless her. Remember, how did she become a queen? She became a queen by hiding her faith. She's an undercover believer. She slept with the king out of wedlock. She married a pagan king. And all of that, while she's silent about her true identity, she might well wonder, could God use me after I've made so many compromises of my faith, in my faith? As one commentator illustrated it, just to give you a, a modern idea of how this would look like today. It is as if someone who has risen up the corporate ladder by shady manipulation of the books, along with neglecting his family and any connection with the church, were to be asked to stand up at a board meeting for his faith over a crucial issue. His response might well be, could God really use someone like me after everything I've done or failed to do? Well, we'll find out soon enough. Mordecai's grief highlighted for us Esther's isolation. And now look at Mordecai's counsel. And here we come to the heart of this chapter. Mordecai's counsel. 
Consider what he says in verses 13 to 14. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So the first thing Mordecai tells Esther is that she has two choices. Death or death. Those are your options, Esther. Esther, either you can choose to die in a palace, undercover Jew, embracing your new identity as a Persian, a comfortable, easy life, or you can die as an open Jew who identifies with the people of God with the attempt to save them. Choose your death, Esther. Esther, think about it. How do you want to die? All must die. But how will you sow the seed of your life? In a palace as a Persian? Or to go as a king, as the despised people of God, as a Jew? Mordecai's counsel shows us also his faith in God's Promises. Look at the beginning of verse 14 again. It says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He says, Listen, God is still going to accomplish his purposes with or without you. He is sovereign. He has promised to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. God is faithful. His word cannot fail. With or without you. But you are still accountable for your choices. And your choices have real consequences now. Look at what he says at the, at the middle of verse 14 again. It says, but, so if you keep silent, you and your father's house will perish it's the God's word won't fail, but you will still bear the consequences of your choice. You will die and your father's house will die. I don't know how God's going to do this, how he's going to work it out. He cannot be unfaithful, but Esther, you and your father's house will die. So beloved, for us today, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he's on the throne. Yes, nothing can thwart his purposes. Yet, he decides to use us, to use ordinary people, to use means. So yes, God chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. And yes, we need to go and tell people of the gospel. We need to share the good news, otherwise they will perish. It's not a contradiction. Yes, God's word will always be accomplished. And yes, you will be judged for how you react to God's word and what you choose today in the here and the now. So it's always faulty logic. It's always a wrong way to think to say, well, since God's word cannot be um, thwarted or his purposes cannot be changed, it doesn't matter what you and I do. That's false. Yes, you're right. God's word cannot fail. And no, you are wrong. God will judge you for your choices and your actions. You are responsible. This is what Mordecai is saying to us. The deliverance will arise from another place, but you and your house, your father's house will die. 
And he then asks her to contemplate whether she has not come to this position for this very moment. Look at the end of verse 14 again. He says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether it is not precisely God who wanted you queen at this very moment so that you can go and plead. Despite your sinful choices, despite your compromises, God is still sovereign. God can still use sinners for it turns out that those are the only people he can use. Those are the only people available. Right? So that's actually a very encouraging thing for us. Like, you know, yes, we might have sinned and along the way, but where are you now? What are you doing now? There God wants to use you. God can use compromising Jews like Esther and Mordecai, and he can use compromising Christians like you and me, like believers like us. Now, please don't think, okay, again, back to the false logic, right? Oh, God's going to use me despite myself. Let's go and sin. No, stop. But he's gracious, slow to anger. He leads us even in our sins, even in our, our, our bad logic. He leads us. That's such an encouragement for me because I make many of those. I have a lot of those. But are we available for him? So where do you find yourself in life right now? Where do you live? What job do you have? Who is your neighbor? Who are you sharing a house with? Have you asked, God, what do you want me to do here? What is my purpose here? Now, it might be, might not be as big as Esther, right? Changing the whole course of history. It might be as small as just doing your work faithfully and honoring God joyfully. Reaching out to those around you with comfort and the gospel. So, beloved, listen, you live in a particular street in a particular family, with a particular job, and in a particular church for God's purposes for such a time as this. Our problem is that we often focus on everything that's wrong with our time and our age, and we're looking back as if the past is the best time to live, and oh, if it was only that age and that era, then then it would have been so good to serve the Lord or easy. But think about it. If God wanted you to live during the time of Esther, you would have. (laughs) He has that authority. But yet, where are you? You're in 2023. You are on God's timeline. And God placed you here. It's not from wisdom that you ask, why is it better in the past than today? Right? I love this verse. This is surprising surprisingly encouraging verse in Acts 13.36. Listen to this. Paul says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. <laughs> Translation, he died. Okay, After he done, he has done what God has had him to do in that generation, he died. Isn't that encouraging? You're going to live as long as God has a purpose for you. And until then, you are immortal. That's all you and I need to worry about. We don't need to worry about how we're going to just do things that's outside of our control. We can't. But what do you need to do where you are right now? All you have to worry about is how to glorify God with the life he has given you. And like Esther, 
You two have a choice before you. You two have to decide with whom are you going to align yourself with. With the world and the world's people or with God and his people. And all the shame that's associated with being a Christian. Listen, life is more than just seeking the most comfort, the most possessions, the most pleasures. There is a life to come after death. There is a heaven and hell. There is a judgment seat waiting for us. And that day, the day you will stand before God on judgment day is the most important day of your existence. So choose your death. How do you want to die? You see, all of you will die one day. All of you, one day, you will die. You cannot escape death, but you can choose how you will live. We've listened to Mordecai's counsel. Listen to Jesus' counsel in Mark 8. This is his counsel to all of you. Mark 8, verse 34 to 38. Beautiful verse. He says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus calls His disciples, he says, if you want to be my disciple, here's the call. Pick up your cross. Now, that is a death sentence. To pick up your cross, to walk with the cross on your back, is to go to die. It is to embrace horrific torture and shaming from other people. Now, who in their right mind will take up that call? Follow me and die with me. Die a torturous, shameful death. Are you in? No, I don't think I'm in. I'm not into that, right? But look at what Jesus says in the rest of the verse. He says, whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life will save it. So Jesus is saying, you're not thinking of pleasures and joy too much, and that's why you don't want to follow me. You're thinking of pleasures and joy too little. And that's why you don't want to follow me. Or to quote Lewis, right? It's not that we are too pleased with the world and therefore we struggle to follow Christ. It is that we are far too easily pleased with the futile, petty, temporal joys of this earth. So Jesus says, if you cling to your life on this earth, if you say, I'm going to save my reputation, I'm going to save my life, I'm not going to go and align myself with Christ or with his people, I'd rather protect that. Ironically, you lose it eternally. Eternally under unimaginable, unspeakable pain, suffering, loneliness, separated from the presence of his glory for all of your eternity. Oh, but if you lose it, if you give it up, if you say, I don't, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care about my health, my comfort, my safety. I'll, I'll die for Christ and for his people. You gain it. Unspeakable pleasures, eternal joy in the presence of the one who died for you so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died. 
That's why Jesus says, you're not thinking of profit enough. He says, what does it profit you? You see what language he's using? If you really count the cost, it's an insane trade. To say, I'm going to keep these short 80 years for billions and billions of years to come. Eternal, eternal life to come. Eternal pain to avoid. I'll rather keep my little retirement. What does it profit you? If you have everything, you have the world, but you lose your soul. Your most valuable position is not your job, your car, your family, your house, or anything in this life. It's your soul that can never die. That's the most important position you have. Don't waste your soul. Don't waste your life. Richard Baxter said it so well. He says, it is best to be with Christ And death, which destroys all the world's glory and levels, rich and poor, is but the common door to either heaven or hell. Beyond that door, your conscience will not ask whether you were, whether or not you lived in comfort or pain, riches or poverty, but did you live for God or self, heaven or earth? And what has had the primary place in your heart and your life? You might say, okay, what if I refuse? What if I just say, okay, I'm, I'm not in. I don't want to listen to this. The end of Jesus, what he says, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. That's what it means to keep your life. Lord, it's going to be shameful to say what I really believe. It's going to be shameful to confess that I believe this book. I'm going to rather keep silent. I'm rather going to say nothing. I'm rather going to deny what I believe about you. Look at the stakes. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus will say those words to you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. It's not worth it. You see, I really pray that Whenever you are in that situation, I know this. Many of you might be very weak believers, and you're like already fearful. Like, how will I, how will I even do that? I don't feel I have enough power or strength to stand up for Christ even at my work. What if there's an axe on my head? Like, I don't know what I will do. But let me encourage you with this: is that you don't need tomorrow's grace today. At that moment, God in His Spirit will empower you. And I pray that sermons like these, that stories like Esther will pop up in your mind by the Holy Spirit. You say, I'll, I'll die. I'm dying. I remember Esther. I remember what she did. She said, if I perish, I perish. Here I go, Lord. That in that moment, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. You're like, but my memory is so bad. But the Holy Spirit's memory is perfect. Don't worry about that. He will bring it to mind. In that moment of temptation, and He will give you strength. But count the cost now. You see? In relatively times of peace. Count it now. It's not worth to cling to sin or pleasures or the, the applause of man. That's so fickle. But our text actually goes one step further. So it's not just to not be ashamed of Christ and to be a Christian. The text tells us not to be ashamed of Christ's people as well. Esther could have said, I'm still a Jew. I'm just going to be silent. I'm a private Jew. Oh, those people, I don't know who they are. 
No, no, no. But that would also be a denial of her faith. If she would have survived, she would have died a, a slow death of meaninglessness. So if your brother or sister in Christ is thrown in prison because they stood up for their faith, if they are persecuted, we should resist the temptation to be ashamed of other Christians. Okay, still going on. (laughs) So Paul, in his final letter, made this appeal to young Timothy. So you can still see there, 2 Timothy 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul, I love this verse because Paul is in prison. Listen to what he says to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Many Christians, when Paul was sentenced to prison, when he was about to be executed, were ashamed of him and started pulling back from Paul. We read that, listen to the next verses, 2 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. It says, Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Amosipherus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So for those of us who are following Christ, count the cost. Listen, you will be shamed for Christ and other Christians, but you don't have to be ashamed of them. You can, like Jesus, I love this verse in Hebrews 12. It says, for the joy set before him, despising the shame. Isn't that such a beautiful, it's as if shame is personified as a human being looking into the eyes of Christ, tempting him to climb off the cross, tempting him to save his own life, to save him from the shame. He looks into shame's eyes and says, I despise you. I will not be ashamed. Such a beautiful verse. We should cling to Christ and to his people as well. As we share in sufferings for Christ we will also share in his glory when he is risen from the dead, when he comes again. It is worth it. And for those of you who do not follow Christ, who do not know Jesus, who have never come to saving faith in him, our invitation might sound strange to you. Come join our company. Join our fellowship. Here you'll be shamed. Here you'll be persecuted. Here you'll be hated by all. Here you will die a horrible death. Come join us. And you will have Christ and eternity and eternal life forever and ever with him. Your creator. I don't know how many of you have read The Hobbit or saw, saw The Hobbit movies, but like Bilbo Baggins, right? You have two choices. You can stay in your little hall, smoke your little pipe, drink your little tea, eat your breakfast and have relative safety or join the company of the dwarves, Right? Where the king is, where they are, have sleepless nights, in the cold, much suffering, but they get, they're going to get gold. The king is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So your option is also death or death. Choose your death. And let's close with Esther's choice. What did she choose? What was her choice then? Look at what she said, what, what happens in verses 15 to 16. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for, for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Fasting, especially in a context like this, is, a, is always accompanied by prayer, pleading with God for his mercy. Maybe something like praying, Oh Lord, you are sovereign. All things are possible with you. Please grant us favor. Protect Esther. May the king's heart be inclined to him. They are casting themselves on the mercies of God. And that's so important for us in times of crisis. We should be fasting, not just individually, but even as a church. We should humble ourselves as a church. Look to God in fasting and pray. Lord, help us. Give us mercy. Our eyes are on you, Lord. Esther has no guarantees. If I perish, I perish. You cannot read providence forward. Providence is like Hebrew. You have to read it backwards. Okay? And that's how you can only look back and see, oh, this is why God has brought me to this place. Now I understand. But before then, you, you don't know, but you can still trust God. Isn't her choice beautiful, right? She says, basically she's saying, I will rather die as a Jew than live as a Persian. This is who I am. This is my identity. I belong to Yahweh. I belong to these people, the children of Abraham. They are my people. In this, she reminds us of the one who also was willing to lay down his life for us. You see, the Jews needed a mediator to come between King Asuerus and themselves. And we too, we needed a mediator to, to appease the wrath of God over our sins. The same attitude that was in Esther, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is on his knees, Lord, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. His death wasn't just a probability, it was a certainty. And yet he gave it up freely and willingly that we might be saved from our sins, forgiven and cleansed, adopted into the family of God. And his call to us is to come, come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. In him you have forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons, co-heirs with Christ. So don't be ashamed of him who has loved you so much. And then we can follow his example. Listen to this beautiful verse, 1 John 3.16. John 3.16, but with the one in the front. says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's pray. Father, we confess that like Esther, we are so often doubtful of your, your providence, your mercies. We compromise in our lives. Lord, thank you that you use sinful people like us just the way we are as we give ourselves up to you. And Lord, we know in the story of Esther, it turned out well. But for many of us, it might not turn out well. And we know that even then, we are more than conquerors for Christ who has loved us. 
and you truly work all things for our good. Lord, may we count the cost. Give us an eternal perspective of our lives that we might not cling to this short temporary life that so easily fades away. But may we cling to Christ, deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow the one who has went before us to the cross. O Lord, strengthen our faith as your children. Those who do not know you, may you draw them to yourself and may they too join our company and our fellowship. Lord, that we might sing to you, glorify you both in life and in death. Make that true for all of us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.